question. What do Garrett Cole, Steven Strasberg, and Max Scherzer all have in common? Besides being premier major league pitchers and making north of $35 million per year. I'll give you a moment to think about it. The Willie Mays Most Valuable Player Award presented by Chevrolet goes to Steven Strasburg of the Washington Nationals. Yeah, the Nationals, uh, their World Series MVP, like you mentioned, he chose to stay here in D.C. Steven Strasburg agrees to a seven-year, $245 million deal with the Nationals. That makes him the highest-paid pitcher ever. Right-hander into his windup. The 0-2 delivery is on the way. Strike three called, and there it is. Strikeout number 2,500 in the career of Max Scherzer, the 35th pitcher in Major League history to reach that milestone. Nine years, $324 million from the Steinbrenner Vault. Garrett Cole, the exact player the Yankees have been missing. Time's up. They all share the same agent, Scott Boris. Scott Boris is the founder, owner, and president of the Boris Corporation, which currently represents roughly 175 professional baseball clients. He is considered one of the most powerful sports agents on the planet, with $2.4 billion worth of contracts in his portfolio. And in the last 40 years, he has negotiated some of the biggest contracts in sports. But before the big money deals and Boris Corp, Scott received his doctorate of pharmacy degree before heading off to law school. His perspective on the pandemic with relation to baseball is fascinating as it comes from a vast number of knowledgeable resources. Scott Boris joins us for an extended chat on the Sports on Pause podcast. Scott, let's uh, start with this first and foremost. How are you and your family within uh, everything we are all dealing with when it comes to COVID-19? Thank you, Dom and Richards. It's really... It's quite nice to talk baseball with people, so thank you for inviting me, and I hope you and your families are all well. In California, we almost feel a bit guilty because the, you know, there's many theories that maybe the strain of the virus, our healthcare facilities and such. Uh, we were one of the first states to get the virus in uh, North America, uh, Washington and us, way back in January. And we had it like 30, recorded 30 days, 40 days before New York. New York didn't get it to March 1st. And yet after 22 days, uh, we saw 1,500 deaths in California and about 22,000 deaths in New York. You saw the gross difference of the, whether it be strain of the virus or the impact of how we live and such. And both New York and California were only separated from isolation dates by about three or four days. So there's a lot more things other than social distancing and isolation going on is how we appraise this virus. And we're getting more and more information about it, which is making all of us, I think, feel a little bit more comfortable about how, what approaches we take and how we deal with this. Scott, those differences geographically make it really difficult to ascertain when we should be talking about returning to play sports. There have been many rumored scenarios for what a season might look like, and now we're starting to see some of the measures being lifted in different states of the United States. 
what is your perspective on what is feasible and what is appropriate in terms of returning to baseball activities and then eventually what the season could look like? You know, I'm a, besides my baseball playing background and being a lawyer, I'm also a pharmacologist. (laughs) So in the scientific area, I really rely on experts and a very well-noted immunologist at UC Berkeley noted that you really should give states a, what he called a local appropriate decision. And I did these studies recently and we took six states, the United States and New York and uh, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, and those six states accounted for, as of last Sunday's computation, 72% of the deaths in the virus in, in the United States. And I took nine states, nine other states, which were Florida and California, Arizona, Texas, Ohio, Missouri, Minnesota, Wisconsin, those nine states, which encompass 17 major league ballparks, they are in effect only account for 10% of the mortality. And so when you look at this and you say, is there a geographical component to this? Most definitely. I'm a component for getting spring training started right away because I want these athletes to be tested. I want them to be measured. I think isolation is necessary as a conservative acknowledgement of the public health issue. But I also think we have the social detriments of health, and that is lack of, you know, we have isolation, the economic stress, the containment of people, lack of elective surgery, cancer treatments, all these other things are uh, increase the mortality rate as well. So for baseball purposes, we have athletes that have between the ages of 18 and 45, the recent Stanford studies have said that we have a mortality rate that's somewhere in the ages of, of those that have been hospitalized and treated of, of 0.1 to 2%. So in other words, 10 people per 100,000. Major League Baseball says 27 of its 30 teams will voluntarily participate in an antibody research study conducted by Stanford and USC. Each participant will have a finger pricked to produce blood that will be tested for the presence of antibodies, which indicates a past infection, even in people who have never displayed symptoms. About 10,000 total employees across the league have volunteered to participate, including players, stadium workers and executives. Baseball's employee base encompasses a vast range of ages and geographies. That's a key feature for this study. Researchers said there's nothing in it for the league other than to help public health policy. The researchers asked many companies for volunteers, but baseball was the first one to say yes. The goal of the project is to provide a better understanding of how many people in various parts of America have been infected. That could help researchers figure out how many people might have been exposed but suffered no symptoms And that information could help public officials determine when it's safe to ease up on social distancing rules meant to slow down the pandemic. We have athletes that have between the ages of 18 and 45, the recent Stanford studies have said 
that we have a mortality rate that's somewhere in the ages of, of those that have been hospitalized and treated of, of 0.1 to 2%. So in other words, 10 people per 100,000. And when you're looking at New York State, to put that in perspective, that is 108 people per 100,000. And so when you put that into the context of Florida and uh, Arizona, those are like four or five deaths per 100,000. So there's dramatic different mortality rates. And with players' age, having medical histories that most people in the general population do not have because they're studied for years, no underlying medical conditions. And that's where the mortality comes from. It's almost like 90% of the mortality deals with age and underlying medical conditions coupled with COVID. So we're looking at the lowest mortality rates for this employment group. And you're also looking at as done in those states that I think that we have to have what I call a functional isolation because we've got to return to We've got to consider the social detriments of public health, and we also have to consider the public health issue. And I think that getting players back is going to serve as a control and a model that we can advance and really understand the virus all the more. But it also, I think, is going to bring a lot of hope and and a light to normalcy that uh, will be rather unifying for all of us. Scott, when you've spoken with your clients, what do your clients want to most know? Uh, about this as it relates to potentially playing and what Major League Baseball is potentially thinking? Yeah, our our approach has been we're giving them the most current studies and the data. And we're dealing with practitioners. Uh, you know, there are things like uh, this is going to be very much a medical text on our, on our discussion today, but there's convalescent plasma, which is basically giving the antibodies as though you had the virus, is that they can give you a transfusion give you that plasma, and it, it, it basically allows you to get the antibodies you would otherwise have from having it. Those antibodies block the receptor sites of the virus, and so that if you are exposed to the virus, you uh, won't get it because if you have the antibodies. And so convalescent uh, plasma treatments have already been utilized on the frontline workers in New York State and have been demonstrated the Mayo Clinic has worked with this to be quite helpful uh, in a treatment. We're very excited about Oxford's vaccine study, which is now well into uh, where they're really promoting for the English government to actually create for distribution. And we've also have a German uh, entity that is also uh, now doing human trials on their vaccines. Researchers at the University of Oxford started the first phase of human clinical trials last week in five different centers in southern England. With data expected to be available next month, they say if all goes well, a later stage trial could begin by the middle of this year. A key question for any successful vaccine, though, will be the ability to manufacture it at a large enough scale. That is where a partner like AstraZeneca comes in. Under the agreement with Oxford, the British drug giant will be responsible for development and worldwide manufacturing and distribution if the clinical trials prove 
that the vaccine works. Now, it's not the only experimental vaccine already in human studies. One from Moderna and the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. began testing in healthy volunteers in March, while small biotech company Innovio has also said it's begun tests. Several vaccines in China have also entered the first phases of human testing, whilst Pfizer and BioNTech began trials in Germany last week, and they're expected to start U.S. trials imminently. So the genome of COVID is very similar to other coronaviruses that they have. And so they're a little bit ahead on the vaccines where it may not take a year and a half or a year to find one to do this. So, but the main thing is in the current, the players want to know, we know what happens to me if I get it. And for most players, the truth of it is, is we know now the current medical data that, that this is something that will, for many of them, be asymptomatic. Uh, many of them were, have already been exposed to it. I've had players where their wives and families have gotten this and they haven't gotten it. And I've had players that didn't know they had it and they had it. And so there's a lot of that goes on in that, in that population, particularly in this age group. But the realities of it is by having medical care every day, having testing every day, we're going to be able to really, I think, treat and manage this situation without any a very low probability of any mortality or serious damage to players. You mentioned you've had players that were asymptomatic. Have you had players in your group that have been symptomatic? And if so, or if you do, how can you help support them in, in that time? Well, the main thing you do is that, you know, it's more inclined to when a player develops a skill, he does it through information and observation. And um, the uh, same is true here, where we're giving them the best medical evidence because it, it's, it's remarkable in the medical community how this has changed. We just had yesterday a reveal on, on um, an agent that really, when given to patients in the hospital, dramatically decreases the impact of the virus and therefore decreases the hospital stay. And so that's a new therapeutic agent. And so now we have the, uh, just today, the Oxford lab is announcing that the, uh, the early tests are just showing dramatically that this works and they're trying to advance procedures to get this to the public at a much quicker rate than expected because of the success of the vaccine. So Week to week, we're getting new medical information on treatments and such. And what you try to do is I send out a, a weekly information and text to all of our clients. I have 140 employees. We're constantly communicating with them about their training, what they're doing. We're certainly trying to do things to because we have another concern in baseball. So we don't I think it's going to take a little bit longer spring training because players have been isolated. They've been concerned. They have not been doing what they normally do. And I want a little bit more of a conditioning period because I don't want injuries to prop up. And, and I want the players to have adequate time to get back in condition before they start honing their skills. Scott, from the uh, sort of the many contingency plans that we have heard regarding Major League Baseball, what for you has sounded the most sensible? You know, I, I've, I've focused more on the training and readiness of the players because that's going to comfort governors, mayors, countries to know you're bringing a healthy product to their city. 
The second thing I think about is health and safety. I don't think Major League Baseball should be played anywhere but in Major League Stadiums. Why? Because of the turf conditions, because it is a an environment that players in the major leagues are used to playing in. And the other aspects is the locker room sizes, the capacities of the stadium. We have our best chances at isolation and distancing in those arenas. We can come in and put on a major league baseball game and have 150 people that are tested and ready. Think about your trip to the supermarket. I was raised in a, a, on a farm up here in Northern California. And, you know, the crop is picked. It goes to the the boxes. The boxes and then goes to the transporters, take it to the warehouse. The warehouse uh, unload it, reload it. Those transporters take it to the grocery store. The grocery store people unload it. The stockers stock it. The people at the cash register sell it, and the customer picks it up. So there's about a chain of nine people that are untested every time you go to the to the grocery store, including the product which you're buying. And so when you're looking at that versus the containment we can have on putting on a Major League Baseball game without fans initially, I think we'll certainly say that we can do that in a very, very safe and controlled manner to give to give fans and to give everyone, you know, because if we want isolation and we all agree that that's necessary for our advancement of overcoming the virus what's the best way to keep people inside and that is look at the ratings for the nfl draft and uh here they're like 40 percent higher than ever before the michael jordan uh, documentary is getting record rates of any documentary espn has ever put on because people are looking for fresh product to watch on television, certainly Major League Baseball would provide that. So, you know, you could do things like you just pick the states by the low-risk uh, mortality rates. I think what we're going to learn in the next, you know, my idea is get the players ready, get them in spring training, and then map out your scheduling choices. And by doing that, we're going to have restaurants that are going to be partially opened or fully opened. We're going to have states and information on models of what they're doing and how they're doing it. We've had openness that really is going to allow us to say, what do we do with Major League Baseball? Uh, certainly, I think everyone agrees we're going to start without fans, but how soon do we return to fans and, and what do we do? But uh, the first step we've made is it certainly looks like we're going to have a season. The second step is, is how soon we can get the players ready and in spring training. And then the third step to me is, is, as creating the schedule. Dr. Fauci recently put return to play in any sport in doubt when he said players really shouldn't be permitted to play before we have widespread testing that leads to quick results, which you know is not the current case right now. Is that too high of a barrier to clear in your estimation? Well, Dr. Fauci said a week ago that he was thinks that baseball should be played in stadiums without fans. So I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I think there has to be context to what he's saying. But remember, we're going to have testing in baseball. We've already had it. If not, we've reached an agreement with it. Uh, there's a bunch of vendors now that are open to contracting with workers and people. And we're going to have a totally different testing element. And, you know, like soccer went out and contracted with a private company. 
and they agreed to give five tests for every test for a soccer player to the general public to, you know, accommodate testing for the community in addition for the professional athletes. And so this is something that is in the fold, if not already done, because contractors are dying for business to have testing. Um, and I think it's going to be available and clearly uh, something that is, is accessible for Major League Baseball very much in the short term. Scott, uh, sort of asking you a little bit of a crystal ball question, but how would the loss of gate revenue, how would the loss of any kind of, um, you know, sort of in-stadium monies that come in, how, in your opinion, will that impact player salaries, at least in the near term, particularly maybe for free agents who uh, would be free agents in 2021? Well, we can never look at an asset in the short term. It's like buying stocks. If you bought a stock 10 years ago, if you bought Berkshire Hathaway and the stock has quadrupled in value and over the 10 years, and then you hold on to the stock and all of a sudden you have this uh, dynamic where the stock value drops for a bit and then it comes back. And the reality of it is over your 10-year model, how much have you made? And the answer is you've made an amazing amount of money. It's been a very successful venture. Well, that's Major League Baseball because any franchise in this game that was bought for $80 million or $70 million, like the Kansas City Royals, and now all of a sudden they're sold for $1.1 billion. Most of these owners have, if not a billion dollars in equity, many of them have that and more. And so the idea of it is, is that when they have something like this, Remember, players gave up anywhere from 30 to 50% of their salaries. That is not something that they're going to ever get back. Ownership, because they own the franchise, has the ability to look at their past and say, look, we've been highly successful. We have these reserves. We're going forward. And in 2021 and further, we're going to have you know, great successes in the game because we have new streaming rights to now sell. We we have the freedom to do that locally. We have, you know, I think fans are going to be very, very hungry for sports in uh, in 2021 after being away from it. We also, can you imagine this year that while they may have periods of times without fans, that you look at the ratings, they might go to their vendors and say, you know, like Rogers also owns the teams. Well, having all these people at home, their ratings might be two to three times higher. Their advertising rights rates are higher. They might more than ellipse the ticket cost because of the fact that they have, you know, gotten a real premium on higher ratings for their broadcast. Because remember, the Blue Jays will be the only thing shown in Canada, likely, unless hockey comes back for all the summer. So as we as we look at this, there are benefits and detriments. I think the players suffer the worst course because their careers are shorter. They may not be able to recoup it, uh, what they've lost in 2020. The lack of performance, you know, will create questions and some subtext for, for players. So it is, I think, really more hurtful for the players than it is for the teams uh, in the long run. 
But on the other side of it is being competitive, is that there's going to be some free agents that, uh, particularly in the pitching market, are that are going to be highly coveted because they know it relates to winning. And for many of them, they may not have as many innings on their arm, and that be, may put, place them in greater value because they already know how good they are, and they just have less wear and tear on them because of a shorter season. So it, it creates a higher probability of, of, of greater performance for the team that gets them in the free agent market. So, But there may be a lot of mid-level players, too, that didn't get a chance to perform, that needed to perform, that it will affect in the negative. So, But, you know, when you look at a market, all those subjects are generally true in a full season versus a partial season as well. So there's a lot on the line for a lot of players who, who need to have good seasons at the right time. Service time is a divisive issue at the best of times. What are the implications to service time in that conversation if we have a truncated season? We struck an agreement with owners um, about uh, 45 days ago where under the CBA, the owners were required to give a full season, 162 games. And because of the health issue, I think there was a very, a real concession and a, and a you know, a strategic compromise where players said, we're not going to hold you to that. We're going to alleviate you of, of the issue of having four and a half billion dollar obligation. Um, but we want to have insurances. You're going to have a season and what criteria you're going to, to uh, advance to determine what that season is. Um, and they set out that criteria. So in good faith, obligated to do that. And the players are just going to be paid on a per game basis. And they've also agreed that whatever season we do have would be a full season of service uh, for those players. If they agreed to, you know, take the salary compromise of essentially if they only get to play 70% of the season, they've given away 30% of half the season, they've given away 50%. You know? The future of the minor leagues was already somewhat in jeopardy before. Will we ever see minor league baseball return to the way we've been accustomed to it after COVID-19? I think for the most part is that, you know, we have these wonderful spring training facilities where they have, six, seven fields, you know, the Blue Jays facility that they've built, you know, for their minor leagues is a, is a fantastic, you know, forum for the development of players and the leagues that you have, the lower levels you have, you know, you're going to have definitely low A, high A, double A and triple A, which is about 120 teams. But then when you get down to the lower level leagues, these, uh, you know, partial season leagues, short season leagues, the ballparks, the conditions, the, the travel, you have a lot of wasted time for me. And remember players' bodies are developing when they're on entry into major league baseball, particularly out of high school, somewhat out of college and that they have strength and conditioning coaches. They have beautiful facilities. They have diamonds to work on when they're not playing um, you get so much more development when you can work. They could have a full season league in Florida and Arizona, and then they can have the traditional Gulf Coast and Arizona league partial season leagues for the entry level players. I just think you get a lot more development, nutrition, medical treatment. You're able to monitor your players and get them more on their feet and professionally ready. 
by doing it this way, I think it's a wise, wise decision for players and organizations in development. And and then we, when they're ready to go, we put them out into low A ball and they start their minor league experience at the at the four different levels where they're out out in cities. Speaking of player development, what do you do with the draft? Do you shorten it? Do you postpone it? It's going to be tough to evaluate prospects this spring in high school or university who haven't had a place to play. How do you handle the draft? Well, for most teams, when you look at a premium high school player, the top 60, you've learned that there are probably maybe three or four athletes at best that are unknown and reveal themselves during a high school or college season. and the, the college players have been looked at from their sophomore, junior, senior year in high school, then their freshman, sophomore, junior year in college. The college players are very well known. And you're going to see in this draft that scouts are very comfortable with those people because they've seen a lot of them. They know who they are and they're going to be um, drafted accordingly. And whether or not they didn't get to see the final two months of the college season, I think it's not going to have much impact on their evaluations. For the high school athlete, I would estimate that there's not going to be as many high school athletes taken high in the draft because they have been seen less. They still know who they are, but their chances of of jumping up into the top of the draft, um, I think it's going to be a lot easier for clubs to choose the players they've seen more of in the college ranks than such. So, Really, the the lack of being seen, uh, most organizations are just very, very adept, and they follow these players since their freshman year in high school. They've seen them a lot. It's just that a lot of them have grown. They've gotten stronger. They've gotten more efficient. They didn't get a chance to show that their senior year in high school. So I think that would probably preempt a good number of players that may have the skill to do it, but they won't get drafted at levels and we're going to see a lot of high school players uh, return to college so that they can, I think, be appropriately rated in the draft um, as as uh, time goes forward. Because baseball is such a game of failure, it's a very mental game. There's been much discussed about the mental health of athletes during the COVID pause in sports. I'm interested to hear about some of the things that you can do for the mental health of your players during this period of purgatory. Well, over the years in in representing players, I've had the great fortune of, uh, you know, I hired Harvey Dorfman. He was the first psychologist, sports, real sports psychologist in baseball. And, and he was a great mentor about the importance of the subject which you're addressing. And uh, I now have two psychologists on our staff that work for us and really are very, very busy dealing with a lot of the issues about the disappointment, the concern, the pressure, uh, the worry about how this irregularity uh, is going to affect their careers and their opportunities. And that could be for a veteran major leaguer who needed to have a good season to get the contract he'd hoped for. Um, that could be for the young player who was hoping to get drafted higher in the draft and get, didn't get to play a full season. 
that could be for the injured player who was coming off an injury and was really hoping to get back at it this year and now has been off even more and the concerns they have and their wives, families, children, relatives, all those things are in play. We also have a sport fitness institute where we have our own, we're the only agency that has psychologists. We have our own training staff, our own medical staff. We have an app where we have reporting. We have calls going out to players. We're in constant communication, giving them updates about the latest information and doing what we can to create hope, to have them be aggressive about their workouts as best they can and to be readied for the moment when the when the bell rings and they're going to return. And I think that's something that's very important, that no one's saying that sport's not going to return. As a matter of fact, I think if you said a month ago, where are we with this virus and where are we now, I think everyone would be very encouraged, with particularly with the therapeutics advancements we've made and also with the really the readiness of vaccines is just really ramping up, which is exciting news for all of us. So you certainly want to keep them abreast of all that. And I think it really helps their psychology by, by getting more information and also having people to talk to that they trust and know, and know their histories that they can share their concerns and have someone on the other end of the phone, talk with them about it to uh, really give them a, a better state of mind as they approach each day. You have a really unique perspective because you get to interact and talk with multiple stakeholders on various levels of the game from the players and PA to the team presidents and obviously league officials. With that perspective, if Rob Manfred said, Scott, there's a, a lot of variables and I have a moral responsibility, but I also have a business responsibility what do you suggest? What would you advise me to do in our action plan? What would you tell them? I believe that Major League Baseball should lead. We need leadership through this virus. We need to show everyone. I mean, we have, you know, we have frontline medical workers working. We have doctors working. We have people in the grocery store working, people at the gas stations working. We have a whole host of, you know, all of our police, fire, you know, emergency systems are all working. We have media working. Everyone is working. And so we're talking about this. You know, they're all taking the very same inherent risks that we need work, but we need to show that employees and employers can safely return a group of employees to work. And how do you do that? And what stages? My plan is you categorize, you test them before they come, you test them when they get there, and then you categorize them. Those who've had it, those who are negative, and those who are positive, you have an isolation dynamic for. And me, you bring in pitchers and catchers first. Ten days later, you bring in the position players. You keep them separate for ten days. And then after about 20 days of being there, you, you join them. And then all of a sudden you created a healthy herd of players and everyone's aware of that. And the players are well and they feel more confident. They're also working on their skills. There's always a concern your skills going to be minimized uh, in some way because of the fact that you've been away from it. You can't hone it and operate in the same way you have your entire career. 
so the answer for me is we create a leadership control. You know, you, you have a create a science to this that others can use. And we're doing this in states that have the lowest mortality rates and with employees and baseball players that have the lowest mortality risk to do it in. And by illustrating that leadership, we're doing back what President Roosevelt did in the one that we had World War II. We want baseball. Why? Because it brings normalcy. The soldiers wanted to know about it. And I think every country does. And we, we want employers to see that they can look at this model and say. So my answer is that when you have the lowest mortality risk among the employees and you can do it, let's set up and be a leader in how we bring back normalcy to our respective countries. Scott Boris, we appreciate your time and your insight. Stay safe and thank you for joining us on the Sports on Pause podcast. Sorry, it was a lot of medicine, but I, I'm glad we get to talk a little bit about baseball, Donovan and Richard. Thank you. Scott Boris is never short of opinions, and they're normally an educated one, and that is the case on this topic. I did not expect him to rattle off stats in terms of what the rates were in different states in the United States, but that just shows you he's a different cat altogether. I really found it interesting how aggressive and how much he would like baseball to take the lead on this issue because much of the things we've heard from people in sports publicly has been pretty pragmatic. What were your takeaways, Richard? Well, you know, I found Scott to be an interesting voice just because of his role in the game. You know, he represents some of the biggest players in the league, you know, highest paid players. So he has significant power just given the economics of the game. He obviously, I think, wants to accelerate baseball returning. And, you know, I, I think probably for both um, pragmatic reasons as well as the reasons that he misses baseball. So he offered some interesting things just in terms of, um, you know, separating pitchers and positional players and then eventually bringing them back together. But a takeaway from that conversation is really the same takeaway that I have every time people who are around the game of Major League Baseball offer contingency plans for this. And that's just the importance of the public health and medical part of it. And it's testing, 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 testing. And that to me is really the only way any of this can work is if you can, as best as possible, provide a sort of quarantined or controlled environment where you have in real time what the the health of the players are and what the health of the personnel staff is. That That's the only way this comes back. But I think it's very clear from both what Boris said and from what we're seeing in the media that baseball sooner than later is going to give this a shot. Yeah, the testing part is a great point. And we're going to get to a point at, at some point where this no longer is a logistics issue and it becomes a moral or PR issue. Leagues individually will have to decide, okay, we can acquire enough tests but do we want to be going back and playing with these tests when there are still people who in many areas can't get them? Unless that scenario changes in the next couple of months, these individual leagues will have to make those decisions. We've heard Scott's viewpoint on it. He believes baseball, again, should lead because they have the tests. And that actually leads me into the last word. And 
it ties well actually into a couple pieces that I've read, and actually one of them I reread recently. Dr. David L. Katz wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. It's not new, but I reread it actually because the title, The Wrong Way to Fight Coronavirus, is a reaction to it. But his title is actually, Is Our Fight Against Coronavirus Worse Than Disease? And I think when we talk about this issue, it's very binary. People want to get back to work to restart the economy right now, or we should shelter in place until we have a vaccine. And there might be a middle ground where we reduce harm. And I think that's what Boris was alluding to. So give the read by David L. Katz some attention, and maybe in the future we can have him on the show to talk about scenarios, including in sports. And my other one, and again, all of this is tied to to finances, let's be quite honest. The Economist had a good piece recently, what to expect in the post-lockdown economy. The belief is lockdowns will leave behind a 90% economy that will be more fragile, less innovative, and more unfair. So again, when we're talking about these issues, there is a health component, which is much, much needed to discuss, but there are also other factors. And thankfully, Scott was able to have that full conversation with us today. And it's one that we'll continue to need to have. What stuck out to you? What did you come across this week that you want to share, Richard? Donovan, I like the ones that uh, you mentioned. And I guess what I would add to that is just a piece I saw from Ray Suarez in the Washington Post. Ray Suarez was for a long time pretty big figure on uh, public television in the United States. And he wrote a first-person essay about how um, the pandemic sort of really has changed his equation as a, you know, sort of as a 60-something worker in the market and where he thought um, money would be coming in from speeches and those kind of freelance paid gigs for someone who had had a pretty remarkable broadcasting career. That is all dried up. And they're certainly not comparing what Ray Suarez is going through to somebody who's really under uh, in the poverty level or, or someone who's really making minimum wage. But it does give you really some interesting insight into how the pandemic uh, has impacted someone in Ray Suarez's age group. So that's that's one I recommend there. Ray Suarez for the Washington Post uh, with the headline of, I clung to the middle class as I aged, the pandemic pulled me under. It's a good call. And listeners, just so you're aware, don't feel like you need to scribble these down as we give them to you every episode. They are in the descriptions of this podcast hyperlink there. So that is a place you can go and find the resources that we are passing along. We also want to pass along our thanks to not just our healthcare workers, but certainly the medical professionals that are keeping everyone safe, but all the essential workers, whether you are working at a grocery store or you are doing construction or you are a custodian or you're delivering the news, which is vastly important right now. Thank you so much for allowing us uh, to continue some normalcy during this crazy period. And thank you again for liking, favoriting, sharing, subscribing. It really means a lot to us. That is the currency with which uh, we do these things. So that is much appreciated. Until the next time, stay safe, take care of yourself and others.